0: Hey guys, wanted to hop in here real quick. You're like, what is Casey doing? Why is he talking to us? wanted to try something. I wanted to tell you a little bit about the guest before you hear the interview because I just finished the podcast with him. I know it's a little bit like Inception because I'm talking about having just finished the podcast and you haven't heard it yet and it's coming up if you... If you want to skip, skip past me, <laughs> maybe hit 30 seconds twice and then it'll go past. But I just wanted to give you a sense for what's about to happen. Um, I really enjoyed this podcast, which is what inspired me to hop on here and share not necessarily cliff notes, but some of the key things to listen for. And that may even inspire you to grab a notebook or have that handy, or maybe mark this episode to be listened to in the future when you have a chance to listen to the whole thing. Jim is awesome. We've talked before. He's a sales leader. You'll hear a lot of that in their introduction, but we talked a lot about sales and marketing. And as a sales leader, he can say stuff about marketing and he can also say stuff about sales. And one of the big things, big thing he smashed, which we're going to get to, what you're going to hear <laughs> in the inception mindset is that, that marketing shouldn't exist to serve sales. And I've seen that in the wrong direction. I've seen that happen personally uh, too, too far, right? Oh, we're, we're at the, the, the request, the, the best of sales. Uh, then what content can I create for you today? Um, but I've also seen it in the opposite direction where marketing is like, we serve ourselves and, and Jim, Dr. Jim, uh, talked about this, how sometimes in the past we had these swim lanes, stay in your lane, stay in your lane. But you know what? He smashed this. He said, no, marketing does not serve sales. Does not. In fact, they are the voice of the customer. And this is this is maybe the second or third time I've heard this lately, the idea of the voice of the customer. We in marketing used to have the voice of the customer. Mad Men days, right? They'd meet with us. Yes, we'd smoke and drink in the office, and we're not doing that anymore. But but we would meet the customer and it was fun and we learned what they really wanted. And then we'd share that or sales would be there with us too. or Maybe they came in afterward, but we used to own the voice of the customer. So Jim just pointed this out. Hey, you're marketing. You're not, you're not the print shop for sales. You're marketing. You own the voice of the customer, bring the voice of the customer. So as he was saying this, the, the takeaway I got was, man, we don't serve sales. We serve the customer. So powerful episode, super good. We're also going to chat about chat GPT. And in Dr. Jim's mind, it's going to completely blow up the way sales is doing its sales within the next 24 months or at a minimum within 24 months, if not sooner. So that is all what you can expect and what's coming up here in this episode. I hope you enjoy. As always, if you have any feedback, hit me up on LinkedIn or just plain old email me, Casey at ringmaster.com. I will see you all on the next one. Take care. Oh, yes. This is the Hardcore Marketing Show. I'm Casey Cheshire, your host for this epic journey. Today's show is sponsored by Ringmaster on a mission to launch B2B podcasts that create relationships, generate revenue, and drive growth. Ringmasterlive.com. Bam. All right. Here we go. The train has left the station. I can't wait to introduce my guest today. I had the pleasure of speaking to him on the other podcast. Yes, that's right, that Creating the Greatest Show podcast about podcasts. Yeah, I'm having a lot of fun over there. If you haven't checked it out, come on over, check it out. But my guest was on there, and we just had an absolute blast. And I found out, not only is he a brilliant guy, has a PhD, but he is a sales thought leader. He's a sales leader thought leader, trainer to the stars. He's a researcher, author, a podcast host, straight up strategy nerd. So I said, man, you have to come over here. I love for the people listening to the Hardcore Marketing Show to hear you. So let me tell you about him a little bit more. He's a co-host of the Cascading Leadership Podcast, co-host of the Talent Strategy 60 Podcast. He is a talent strategy transformation evangelist at Circa.
1: Dr. Jim Canitriol, welcome, sir. Thanks for having me. I was uh, hearing that description, and I was like, "Oh, that guy sounds pretty cool. Where is he? <laughs> like, who's that? I can't wait to yeah, meet. Yeah, I'd like to meet that guy. Hey, that sounds pretty interesting. And then it's like, oh, it's me. Yeah, uh, it's all downhill yeah. from here, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Jim, no, it's, uh, I'm 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 pretty pumped to 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 be here. I had a lot of fun on the uh, the greatest show. And uh, this is going to be a little bit different. I know the audience is probably used to people swearing like sailors. It's early in the day for me. And if I start down that train, I have seven or eight meetings today. I don't want to be sounding like a a sailor in front of clients. So I'll try to keep it as close to PG, PG PG-13 as possible. Heck yeah, there we go. And and you know what?
0: You can swear. It doesn't mean you have to swear because it is the hardcore marketing show after all. So let me get to it. I got to pass you this thing. It's heavy. It's heavy but I know you work out. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, here you go. You grab that? Grab for me Thor's hammer. Backhanded grab of Thor's hammer, ladies and gentlemen. All right, take Thor's hammer, smash for me some kind of sales and marketing myth, bogus strategy, misconception, set the
1: record straight once and for all. So this is going to be controversial coming from a sales guy and I have like six or seven myths that I'd probably drop in here, but I think the biggest one and it's especially relevant today or or at least in the light of uh, some of the new developments uh, that are out there in the marketplace is this idea that sales or that that marketing is in service to sales. And I think that's just ass backwards um, and here's why. So you look at, the dynamics within the sales ecosystems um, what 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 are sellers experiencing for now the last couple of years they're missing quota usually 60 70% of the time uh, you have tremendous churn within the organizations uh, within selling organizations you have outbound motions that have gone through the roof nobody is returning uh, replying to any of those outbound motions, those traditional outbound motions of phone or email or any of that sort of stuff. And the common lament from sellers is I can't get anybody to talk to me. And it's interesting that that complaint exists when a lot of your more mature, or even your accelerating growth organizations have some pretty well thought out marketing functions and teams. That put out a ton of content. And yet, the common complaint that you hear from sellers and sales leaders is that marketing doesn't know what the hell they're doing. Anything that they put in front of us is crap. And, you know, they should be doing a better job of getting us stuff that's relevant. Now, when I hear that, there is some validity to that complaint, but it's tiny. And it's tiny because yes, marketing should be arming and acting in some fashion as a sales enablement arm, but marketing doesn't serve sales. Marketing is the voice of the customer. And if you're a seller and you're too stupid to understand what the customer is telling you and, and think of new ways to kind of connect with that customer, that's your own damn fault for getting the results that you get. So the myth that marketing exists to do sales is bidding and is only relegated to making one pagers and stuff like that, that doesn't really move the needle from the customer's point of view. That's something that's got to change and it's got to change pretty quickly, especially when we're looking at the current economic and technological situation where you have a lot of automation entering the marketplace in many different forms. You have uh, an economic downturn slash crisis that's looming or we're already in it. You've seen the landscape of layoffs that are happening both on sales and marketing. So now is the time for sellers and marketers to integrate what they do and go into the marketplace versus this dumb pissing contest that's been in existence for, I don't know, the better part of the last 10 years where Sales has their lane, marketing has their lane, both sides just get annoyed at each other, and you have 70% of sellers missing quota.
0: Gosh, that's a lot of missed quota right there. And I think when the accountability ratchets up, it's like you either take that on yourself or you point the blame at someone else. And hey, is that is that where this is coming from? Like what where do these lanes de- why did we get to the point where marketing isn't the voice of the customer data they're not claiming it. They're not stating it. So
1: that's a really good question and it is really difficult to answer and I'm not a marketer, so I can't speak directly to it, but sure. I think the fundamental issue is that a lot of organizations, a lot of leaders, both at the executive suite in overall organizational hierarchy and the sales suite don't understand marketing. Marketing spends most of their time trying to explain what they want to do inside an organization. Hey, this is what we're thinking. This is what we want to do versus actually doing the thing and learning from it. Wow. And that's the problem. Marketing spends most of their time trying to justify their position. And there's a, there's a creator on TikTok that I follow um, and, I, and I, wish, I just thought of it. So I, uh, I don't have her name, but I'll definitely get it to you after the show. But she's the one that, that posed the question to marketers. Hey, marketers, how much time do you spend justifying an initiative that you want to advance versus actually executing on the initiative? And that's a problem. I mean, there's, there's this tendency across organizations to not let people advance the areas that they're expert in. I'm not an expert marketer. I'm a seller who pretends to know marketing in LinkedIn land and executes at some level in some marketing elements? So I'm not in, you know, deeply involved in 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 all the different types of marketing. But I think organizations in general aren't allowing their marketing teams to actually run and fully realize and and execute on the customer voice. You know, we're, we're organizations are too concerned about. Can we do something fast? What's the fastest way that we can get to this end result versus the question they should be asking is, what's the right way to do this? What's the way that we can execute it that's going to get us the best results? And those two things in a land where everybody is focused about scale and speed you know, that naturally lends itself to cutting corners to try to get to that end point as fast as you can. And the problem with that is that if you're focused on just pure speed and execution, there's value in it, but you're going to burn a lot of territory getting from point A to point B if your approach is just linear and let's just go full out without any planning or thought to it. Yeah. So from
0: your experience, by the way, this is gold. And I even think that that quote you had said. I mean, that's really kind of the quote too. Is that, I mean, how about some a you know, sales leader and thought leader calling out the challenge that marketers spend so much time explaining what they want to do, justifying what they want to do, trying to mark out some bullshit ROI that may or may not exist if it doesn't work out, and um, meanwhile they could be executing. Uh, it's fascinating. Whereas on the sales side, it's like, go get on the phone, um, go execute. Interesting, really interesting. That's totally a quote. My question from that is, as as a sales, you know, leader, really of, of a movement of doing it the right way, how how do I in marketing, how do I handle you, right? How do I approach the sales side? How do I start acting in a way where that happens, or does this have to come from the CEO? And if it doesn't, we're basically stuck in our lanes.
1: That's a really good question, and I wanna I wanna put a bow around what we were talking about earlier. It was Tanya Thompson. You should find her on LinkedIn and TikTok, who actually posed a question to okay. marketers: How much time do you uh, do you spend justifying what you want to do versus executing on what you want to do? So Shout she's she's great on LinkedIn. She's great on TikTok. Uh, definitely follow her for for marketing. Um, marketing goal left and right. Um, So to your question of as a marketer, how does marketing need to handle sales? And is it one of these scenarios where the executive suite needs to get involved in the process? So I'll take the last part first. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of a subversive. I think the less you can involve executive leadership in your innovation engine, the better off you're going to be. Um, I'm of the belief that all innovation comes from the desk level. So you as a middle manager or a director of a sales or marketing organization needs to shift that power down to the desk and create the space for those frontline people the frontline executors to figure out a way forward. So that's, that's my take on it because command and control doesn't work. And, and the reality is that vast, it, this is just my experience. I think when you get into the executive suite, very few of those leaders will have a tactical understanding of what's necessary from a sales perspective and what's necessary from a marketing perspective. And they might not even be connected to what's necessary from the customer's point of view. And the example that I'll give is think about how many organizations you have that are, they have a revenue group, they have a revenue function. So that's sales, marketing, customer success, all of that stuff. How much of that is informed by customer research? How many organizations are you aware of that are doing extensive customer research to map out the buyer journey to map out the buying process to map out the internal decision set criteria post sale or even on closed lost to find out what happened you know that's that's probably a small number so this is why i would say that level of innovation has to come from people at The front lines Mm. and you have to create the space for them to innovate versus using this cookie cutter mode or cookie cutter approach of, you know, you you need to have a thousand calls in a week. That's just a random number or whatever. You need to have a thousand MQLs or whatever that number is and whatever that MQL means. I think that's all, you know, measurement for the sake of measurement. So, yeah, that's, that's my advice there. So let's take a, a, a look at that first question, which is how should a marketer handle a seller? And how can we advance that goal forward together in a much more integrated way? The question that I always ask, and this is why I do a lot of the things that I do in terms of my own, you know, sort of outbound motions. How can I get in front of anybody that I want to get in front of? That is the question that I ask. So as a marketer, if I'm playing the role of a marketer and trying to engage a seller, the question that I would ask is, I'm going to pretend, Casey, you're a seller. Casey, if I could get you in front of 20 of the top decision makers in your ICP, would you be interested? Sure. Let's do it. That's where it starts. That is the critical question that needs to be asked because most sellers are going to say, yes, you're going to encounter problems on the how, and this is where marketing's expertise in terms of understanding the buyer landscape and the customer journey comes in. So the second part, so you said, sure, let's do it. All right. Well, how are you currently doing that? This is my question to a seller. How are you currently doing that? And they'll list off all their stuff. And it's basically some version of spray and pray and, you know, four paragraph emails. So the how is where sales and marketing diverge because sales has been conditioned to chase the 3% of the market that's in an active buy cycle. The flaw in that approach, there's a lot of flaws in that approach. But the three percent of the market that's in a buy cycle, if you didn't have them on your radar beforehand, you're already behind. You're a commodity that's entering the fray, and you're gonna get nickel and dimed, and your only hope is to be the low cost option or provider and straight who wants itself. to sell. Su- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that is the flaw. It, one of the flaws in how sales approaches the market. So where marketing can leverage that is shifting the question. What would it mean to you if I could put you in front of 100% of your market that will buy from you at some point and put you in a position of expertise and a put, you, put you in a position of influence? That is the shift in thinking that needs to happen on the sales world I mean, yes, you need to be working closest to the money, but you'll never figure out who is closest to the money or who's in a buy cycle if you're purely only doing your outreach on the basis of what can you as a buyer do for me right now in driving my commission check? We've seen that it doesn't work. So what are you going to do differently and how are you gonna engage the world differently where you are building conversations with a hundred percent of your prospect universe? That is how marketing can actually bridge the gap. And this is where marketing and, 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 and content comes in. And, you know, it doesn't necessarily need to be a marketing and sales together motion. If you don't have a marketing department, sellers are gonna to need to ad- adapt. Um. I mean, I, I I know in our circles everybody is paying attention to ChatGPT, right? And other tools like that. I I wrote in my most recent newsletter about how the advancements in AI and tools like GPT entering into the marketplace is going to absolutely obliterate modern selling. The way we sell now is not going to exist twenty four months from now. Really? Most people will say five years, 10 years. I think, I think you're going to see a rapid shift in how the selling motion is executed as soon as 24 months from now. And here's why. Pay attention to how selling was done pre-pandemic and through the pandemic. Everything was cold outreach, spray and pray, all the stuff that we talked about. Right. Res- volume went up. Response rates went down. So the answer that most selling organizations had was, well, let's figure out ways to even push even more volume out. So you had all sorts of tools that would, you you had auto dialers coming into the marketplace, you had sequencers coming into the marketplace. You had all of these things that helps, helps you do more. Well, if you're an actual person, you know, what, what, what really puts you at risk competing on the volume play because I'll tell you what, ChatGPT has already shown you what a good enough volume play looks like in terms of the content creation that it can have with some really simple prompts. It's not great, but it gets the job done. Right. So if you're operating as a seller into the world with, hey, lowest hanging fruit, and let me just you know, spam everybody in the universe, you're never going to outwork automation that can go 24 seven and ChatGPT, their their premium model is coming, or their their paid model is at twenty dollars a month. What do you think that's like? If you integrate that with Zapier and maybe some other uh, a couple of other tools, you're talking about a hundred dollar a month tech stack that can automate all your outreach <laughs> with no benefits, run twenty four hours a day. And you're telling me that doesn't have an impact on what the landscape of an SDR or BDR is going to look like in the next 18 to 24 months. You're kidding yourself. So it becomes critical for sellers and marketers to tap into what makes them human and connect with their universe in a way, their buyer universe, in a way that is authentic, that is hyper-personal, and that is done with an intent of building a customer for life versus a customer for the moment. Hey, Amen. thank you for attending my TED talk.
0: Seriously, customer for life, not a customer for the moment.
1: Damn. Red Bull number two, Red Bull number two.
0: <laughs> so I mean, people are using there's a lot of people that are just all about chat GPT like too much and whenever this happens in real life the first occurrence of this I can recall was um boy bands back in the 90s people were like oh these guys are the best and I was like cool I don't like them (laughs) (laughs) I don't I don't want to know what what's this trend uh how much of this i mean how much of this is is real and how much of this is just people trying to sell something else it's hype around chat gpt
1: i mean it's it's a great question um i don't think it's a fad um you know i i, I think you know everything in life there's a level of arbitrage to it um some product comes out somebody's got expertise in that product there's somebody else that needs to be ramped up on that product so it's a natural exchange of services and value right to you know bring 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 the um what's the what's the word bring the transaction forward or bring uh, a- a- advance that transaction so there's already businesses that have popped up in terms of you know hey how do you leverage chat gpt um You know, I've seen roles for prompt engineers, which are people in larger organizations that are going to just constantly tinker with how you prompt AI to produce output that can be leveraged across the enterprise for any number of purposes. And these are, you know, pretty interesting roles. So ChatGPT came out, what, two months ago, and we're already seeing roles that are tied into it. And, you know, I don't, and, and here's where I differ slightly. From the the common wisdom, I don't think this stuff is going to actually replace um, humans in the sense that we understand it. I think it's gonna it's gonna offload a lot of the task oriented things that ac- exist across every enterprise in every function. So if you look at, you know, it's it it's kind of like a turn of the century when you had a switchboard operator. Like not this century, you know, one of those other ones. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. One of the other ones, um, because or, or you had entire businesses before the car was invented that were in the business of selling buggy whips. Well, the car was created and the buggy whip industry went under. So you're going to see this creative destruction happen with chat GPT and the implication for sellers and marketers is to tap into what makes you human and what can't be at this point or even in the near future be replicated um, by automation or by AI. And that's, you know, a, a motion that is hyper personalized and gathering the context, the reading between the lines aspect of what exists within a buyer's profile that you can leverage to build a connection. AI can't do that yet. Um, It's, you know, it's advanced to the point where there are certain platforms. I think Google's platform, um, there's mixed reports on it, but it's beat the Turing test. And the Turing test is, um, can a computerized um, persona fool a human on the other side more than 50% of the time? And there's conflicting reports on it that Google's AI has actually been able to accomplish that, Uh, whether it's been consistent or not, I don't know. Um, But even if you reach that stage where AI can beat the Turing test, um, you're still going to have that nuance that you can capture as a human um, to better connect with your buyer. So what does that mean from a practical sense? for sellers and marketers, right? Well, you have to rethink, this is where I said, Hey, the big myth is marketing is in service to sales, marketing and sa- uh, sales are two sides of the same coin. That's how you need to move forward. It's how can you integrate marketing into your selling motion? How can you integrate sales into your marketing motion? How can you move together to capture 100% of your buyer universe and get in front of them um, in a way that's authentic and actually helps you build a long term relationship and customer for life. That yeah. is the shift in thinking that needs to happen. Instead of thinking about the 3% that's in the buying cycle, think about the 100% that are actually just people trying to achieve something and just understand what that something is and see if you can either recommend them to somebody that might be able to help them out, or if that's something that that person is trying to advance is a critical capability that you have, we'll have that conversation at the appropriate time. But if you're just leading constantly, which is the motion right now, with, hey, I solved this, 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 and this, uh, we should meet, you're going to get the results that you've gotten since 2018. Mm -hmm. And it's going to be worse. Yeah.
0: I had this problem yesterday it it just totally came to head the idea of trying to get hyper personal trying to get personal what is personal i was sending a few messages to some people on linkedin some that i connected to a while ago we never really chatted right so i wanted to say like hey we haven't chatted but we're connected we should either not connect we should disconnect or we should get to know each other so at least we're like really in each other's network um but then in my mind, I know there's all these apps out there that can like blast all these LinkedIn messages to people. So in my mind, I was trying to figure out what can I possibly say in a message, and of course, that's what spammers are thinking too. That can come across and prove that it's not an automation, you know, coming coming through their door because we all just put up those walls. I oh, don't, no, 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 I don't want the automation. So I want to actually, I want to get some FaceTime with these people just to say hi. I don't, I'm not spamming them. So. I was, I was really racking my brain to think of the different ways. One of the things I did is I actually, I dropped a photo of me swimming with dolphins with my family, right? But of course you can, I know you can automate that too. So it's almost like the reverse Turing
1: test of how do I prove that I'm human? I don't have a clean answer to that question because I think some of the things that you just cited are great examples of what I would do. Like a regular part of my cadence is dropping in either a video on, on LinkedIn mes- Messenger or an audio clip or something along those lines to just say, hello. Um, One of the things that's been really effective for me is most automation is gonna pull information from like the first couple things on a LinkedIn profile, something about your current job or something about the job that you were at before. I, when I'm looking at somebody's profile, one of my most effective ways to convert into a conversation. Cause that's all I care about. And, and I love hearing people's stories. So I'm coming at it from a place that's natural to me. And my entire LinkedIn profile is set up in a way where people know by glancing at it that, Oh, this guy likes to tell stories or hear stories. So I'll often, you know, you know, we were talking about Pablo Gonzalez. So if yeah. I'm, I don't know him. Um, you should get to know him. Lo- yeah. Shout out to Pablo. But. So one of the one of the ways that I do my outreach is if if Pablo was somebody in my ICP and I wanted to have a conversation, my messages are usually like two sentences on LinkedIn. And I'm like, huh. You started out as a contractor and now you're a multi million dollar podcast producer. What's the story there? Because I'm taking his entire career arc and asking a question about that. And that sure. sounds pretty interesting. Be curious to, or not curious, but I'd be interested in, in hearing about it. Uh, Want to chat? Some, something along that is what I send out. And I get probably 60, 70% of the people I send that type of message to responding back. Because that's not, I mean, now that I say that, all the automation jockeys are going to be like, rr, 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 let me program this in there. Right. Um, but the reality is that I, you know, I, that is one way to kind of execute it. If you want to be, that's that's broad. If you want to be tactical and still effective, one of the things that I do is everybody, everybody talks from a sales perspective, lead with the problem. And that's true. Lead with the problem, not your solution. What I do is I twist that. So instead of I lead with the problem, but I say, "Hey, Casey. Generally speaking, when I'm talking to other X Y Z personas, they're dealing with these problems. It looks like you you have a good handle on it, based on the fact that you've been at X Y Z company for this amount of time. Am I off base? People." Right are super excited to tell you when you're wrong. <laughs> so instead of me leading with a question that forces them to admit that they have a problem, I put them in a position to have uh, to to correct me on my assumption. So that's another way that you can get a response. Um and the the hook that I add on the hen- end of it, and again, this is tied to, my LinkedIn profile. Anyways, I write, I have two shows. I, I run my mouth a lot and I talk to interesting people. So I ask them a question. It looks like you have this stuff figured out. Be interested in talking about it. Am I off base? So you're giving people a platform and you're giving them the opportunity to correct you. That's like the, if, if we're talking fishing, Like my, my favorite lure to use is a perch colored jointed Rapala. I slay with that, that lure (laughs) whenever I go fishing, that is the perch colored jointed Rapala of prospecting, understand your persona, know the problems that they face, give them the opportunity to correct you about the problem because you're you're leading with, Hey, you have this figured out and you're giving them a platform that's that's your playbook to get in front of anybody that you
0: want. 100%. I love that. And anyone who's listening to this podcast who wants to reach out to you should probably mention the perch-colored, jointed Rapala, which I'm looking at yep. now on Google. And you must catch some big fish with that because that's not a small lord. That's not some tiny fly. That is like a little mini fish with hooks on it.
1: So it, it depends on what you're fishing for. They come in all sorts of sizes, but that's okay. my like go-to lure. Like whenever I'm having like a, I, I don't fish that often anymore, but, uh, whenever I'm having, uh, no luck between the various sizes of the perch colored jointed Rapala, uh, or the, um, the daredevil, um, spoon. So it's a yellow one. Uh, it has like a joker on it and it's got four diamonds on it. Uh-huh. Um, those two are my go-to lures when I'm fishing. It's it's the slump buster of lures.
0: Yeah, I feel like feel like uh those fortunate enough to be at this part of the show were like, "Ah, I got some fishing tips out of this thing. Thank you very much, sir." Uh, what yeah. size do you I'm looking at 4.375 of the Rapala. Do you do you know what size you tend to fish with?
1: Um, so if I So I'll, uh, I'll use an approximation. So if I'm going for smaller fish, Mm -hmm. uh, let's say like an average size bass, I'll use this side, uh, this size. So I'm, this is probably about an inch and a half, I think roughly. Um, but if I'm fishing for, um, pike or Northern, I'll use one. That's about the size of my finger. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, um, I don't have the sizes memorized there in my tackle box. Yeah, no, I, that's I, all good. But, yeah, but now have, we, now we know the secret. Those, say, yeah, same same thing with, uh, uh, same thing with the, uh, the Daredevil spoons. Um, I have different sizes depending on what, what, what I'm fishing for. Obviously you're not going to use it to go fish for panfish, fish, but right. yeah, you know, anything, anything that's, uh, that's got a decent amount of size. That's what I, that's what I use. Heck yeah! Well, when I think about things and I really want to
0: shift in this, this is a great way to get started on this. It, you know, if I'm, if I'm reaching out to you on LinkedIn, what is your story arc? Who are you? How, how do you have PhDs and master's degrees and you're a thought leader and everyone I interview on either of these podcasts have ever heard of you or know you very well and uh, how you're really? so connected and you're so knowledgeable. Yeah. Yeah. It's a thing. I'm calling
1: it the Dr. Oh. Jim effect. Yes. Well, I, I, I didn't realize that. I mean, so ju- just to clarify, I have an EDD, which is different from a PhD, but that that's, okay, that's getting yes. like inside be- baseball. So it's uh, it's applied research versus uh, theoretical research, um, which plus, arguably is a little bit better. Anyways, um, I don't know if it's better. It's different um, because my goals in getting it based on how I'm wired. I would drive myself, uh, to some sort of brain event if I was in academia, it just moves too slow for me. Um, mm. so if, in this is, this is broad strokes, but if, uh, if you're, if you're pursuing terminal degrees, by and large, you would go the PhD route if you actually want to be in academia and teach. Um, and, and go that track. That's not really my intention. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm teaching all the time, but I, I wouldn't want to do it in that setting because the pace would just crush me. It's yeah. uh, it's like glaciers look like they're running sprints if you're in academia. Um, so there's, Shots uh, I mean, I think, <laughs> <laughs> Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying I'm just saying, keeping it real. Um, that's it. <laughs> The, uh, my, my co-host will laugh at that, uh, Lawrence Brown, because he's, uh, he, he went from the private sector into academia and he's, I, I was like, when he was thinking about making that move and I was like, are you sure? Cause he's wired like me, he's an introvert, but he, aside from that, he's very much wired like I am. Wow. And, uh, he, he, he deals with that frustration. He's just got a lot more patience than I do. Um, yeah, it's like, how do you go from running like a cheetah to walking like a glacier? You know? I need to do that. Yeah, I mean, walking would be fast for <laughs> Um, So, how did I? How, how did all of that fit in? Yeah, you know, I I think I would love to say it was completely intentional. Um, I've always been wired to have and pursue different interesting things, and you know, early in my career, I think if I think back to it. I think it starts from a place of not being comfortable in selling the way that the prevailing wisdom taught you to sell. Because when I was coming up as a seller, it was—I'm going to post a video about this—but there's a there there there's someone who is really well known in the world of selling, uh, and he just put out the 10 commandments of selling and commandment number 1 was dressed to sell and right. there are other elements of his commandments that that make sense but when you're leading with just a pure optics play in terms of how you sell one it reeks of gatekeeping because what if you're from a background where you don't have the means to look like you broke the bank just for what you're wearing So Hill would
0: say, you go out and get a loan and buy that tuxedo.
1: Yeah. So I came up in that world where everything is about, you know, optics versus substance. I was never one of those people that's just going to be like, you drop him in the middle of a conference and he's just going to be circulating around the room, just talking to everybody at the surface level. Uh, I'm, I'm marginally an extrovert. But I don't function in, in a way where I have to circulate across the entire room. it It, it bugs me because it, I don't want to be intrusive in, in that sort of way. But that's the world that I came up in. You know, I smile and dialed, knock on doors, all of that sort of stuff. And I'm like, this is a friggin grind. It's super ineffective even back then. And my thought process was, how can I connect? with someone who is a potential buyer and present in a way that has value in helping them move their business forward. So rather than, you know, rely on, you know, massive amounts of revs, meaning knocks on doors. Um, I decided to figure out, okay, all of my buyers are in business in some way. You know, what are the things that I can do in my selling motion that helps them advance their businesses, either through the knowledge that I'm bringing to them or the people that I can connect them to that can help them accelerate what they need. Um, and that, that was, you know, I, I've been tinkering with that for yeah, like decades. Right. So that was my selling style. And that's the style that works for me. And, and, and if you're looking at what was the root cause for me to kind of pursue this path where I have a lot of pieces of paper that says I think about things, whether I do or don't is, uh, is an open question, but that's why I pursued all these pieces of paper because my goal is to figure out a way to help the person that I'm talking to advance what's important to them. And I'm not married to that advancement path being tied to whatever my objectives are. How, how did you eventually
0: become, I mean, I mean, optically, you're a well-dressed, you know, professional right now. So, so somewhere along the line, the performance you know you led with performance and then the optics followed or how did you find success in going your own path despite what yeah. was expected of you
1: yeah um i mean performance trumps everything and what i've found and this is this is even true today i've always been highly productive and highly effective and you know i've gotten awards and what I'm more proud of is that I've been able to wi- build teams that were highly productive and wi- win awards. so that's actually more important um than my own ability to win awards. So the production was there, which created space. But you know, I mentioned early on in the conversation, I'm a bit of a subversive. Right. And you know, for those that are going to catch the audio portion of this, you know i'm I'm a brown person. So I'm a brown person in sales, so I'm pretty rare just on the basis of that. There are other people that are, you know, browner than I am that are even more rare. Um, And I could point you to a ton of them who are awesome. Um, But there's a certain level of risk being, you know, like brown person in sales and not towing the line. So what I would do is do what's necessary to make the numbers look the way that my leadership wanted them to look from a top of funnel perspective with the understanding that more often than not, most leaders aren't going to dig into those things as long as the right-hand side of the ledger looks the way that it needs to look. So there was a fair amount of garbage at the top of the funnel that I would just throw out there to just satisfy, you know, whoever was looking, but I carved out like, Every seller knows how to prioritize. So I would go through my contact list and figure out, okay, what looks like a high priority based on the criteria that I've determined is a good fit. And those that didn't fit nicely into it, those were in my junk pile. And I would just throw stuff against it. But the ones that I recognize were actually really strong or had the potential to be strong fits. I used a high touch approach to advance it, and guess what? It was those sort of uh, pockets that yielded the best results. So in the end, nobody argued with me because my downstream numbers looked the way that they needed to. but I knew that you know in, in when the when the chips are down, and it, it's even the reality right now and this might be getting like beyond the scope of this particular show, but anytime you have an economic downturn or organizations are looking at making cuts in marketing or sales more often than not. And actually uh, an article just came out about it right now with the big tech layoffs. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it's, it's people from underrepresented communities that are most impacted uh, by those shifts. So if you're a member of that community, you have to cover yourself In making sure that your numbers look right because you're going to be more often than not the first on the chopping block or at least in the early stages of the chopping block which uh uh, you have to be pragmatic about it um so yeah that's 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 how i created the space to do my own thing um yeah i mean i i think you can you can have some questions about what that was the the ethics behind it but it's it's a pragmatic approach Uh, I, I'd love to say we're in a space where everybody can do their own thing. As long as the results are there, that's how I lead as a team leader. I I point the way Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and I rely, I'll coach my people to get there. Um, but the reality of it is that a lot of people will say that, but when it comes to the execution, they're going to drill down into, you know, the top of funnel activity metrics, which I think is one of the big flaws that exists within, um, a selling, organization's mindset. 100%. Looking at that arc, I'd love to throw a
0: hypothetical at you. Yeah. You need to summon all of your higher educational powers for this hypothetical. A little more theoretical of a question. So this might be, you know, not practical enough for you. But here it is. I actually may have a time machine here in New Hampshire. So you come visit. We get a chance, we get some beer, some lobster, we go play around with a time machine, and we get a chance to go back and visit yourself a few days after you graduated with your undergrad degree, many moons ago, and you can talk to yourself, and you could say anything you want. You can give yourself advice, recommendations,
1: whatever. What would you say to yourself? So that that's a great question, and I would probably even wind the clock back to probably junior or senior year of high school. Okay. Um, A lot of this advice is informed by a lot of the great things that the millennial and Gen Z generations have brought into the workforce. So I have a ton of respect for those two cohorts. I'm a Gen Xer. And uh, I think you called me old in the setup to that question by saying you're going way, way back into your undergrad (laughs) days. So you know, I'm going to have to smack you around for that when I <laughs> see you. Um, but to answer your question, I think uh, I, I would go back and I would offer these two pieces of advice, which is especially relevant even today. Um, if anybody tells you to keep your head down, don't create a lot of noise, work hard and things will happen. They're lying to you to their for their benefit. Mm-hmm. That is absolutely not true. I mean, work hard. Yes. But yes. you need to advocate for yourself. And my co-host and I are great examples of it. I mean, we've achieved a, a fair amount of things in, in our career. But one of the things that he and I both talk about, and this is why we launched Cascading Leadership, is that we were raised in that culture. And we made a lot of our bosses a lot of money and mm. got them promoted thinking that we would be recognized just by virtue of our production. And we were to a point, but because we kept our head down, because we kept our mouths shut, our mouths shut, we cost ourselves opportunities. So my advice to my, you know, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20-year-old self would be work hard, get results. You better be promoting the hell out of those results to everybody that you that has influence over your career because if you're not advocating for yourself, it's going to be very rare that you'll have anybody in the company that you're at who's going to advocate for you. So that's, that's probably the, the, the biggest piece of advice that I would give anybody navigating their career is do that. Um, so that's, that's one piece of it. I think the other piece, and this has come up in other conversations, is really apply the concept of being the CEO of your own career. And that doesn't mean do what your boss tells you and dive headfirst into hustle culture where your W-2 job becomes the all-consuming thing that takes up all of your time. Right. Being a CEO of your career means looking at your career arc as a business. So you need to have, you need to figure out ways that you can create multiple revenue streams for yourself. And for somebody that's early in their career, they was like, how the hell do I do that? Um, so you have one revenue stream, which is your W2 job. You're acquiring skills through the pursuit, uh, and progression in that W2 job. Think of the person that's just entering the workforce. That's maybe two or three years behind you you have a set of knowledge, skills, and abilities that would be valuable to that person. So you need to look back and see if there's a monetization or coaching model that you can use to uplift and advance those people. Yeah. I mean, obviously you want to build some of this in, in, in the open, but the objective is to be able to leverage that knowledge in service of somebody else that's coming up. So once you've achieved a point in your career, let's say you have three years of experience, you should be pushing that down to somebody that is just graduating or just starting a new role and figuring out a way that you can actually monetize in small chunks that make sense to that audience and you're creating another revenue stream. While you have that second revenue stream, you need to think about um, what are your passions? So you have your w2 revenue stream you have the monetization of the accumulated knowledge that you've you've acquired in your career progression there that can be monetized third step is to look at what are your passions how can you what what can you carve out in terms of die in terms of time to deep dive into those passions and see if there's a revenue opportunity there so maybe that's writing maybe it's a, maybe it's creative maybe it's a podcast maybe it's a youtube channel those, those are another way that you can create you know, semi-passive revenue for yourself. So your goal when you navigate your entire career arc, and nobody spelled this out when, when I was early in my career. So I was stuck at the, well, how do I do that? Nobody explained right. it. Well, this is how you do it. You take your passion, have several of them, do deep dives into them see if you can build that into the in the open in a way that allows you to monetize that capability and pushing that to an audience that might have value in it so that should be the arc of your entire career so when you think about when i when i say you know you're the ceo of your career your number one responsibility is to have multiple revenue streams so you're never in a situation where you know you wake up the next day, you're locked out of your email and you get a memo saying, uh, somebody will be in contact with you about, um, transitioning out of the organization. And you can kind of walk through life with a stoic aspect to yourself where something like that doesn't crush you in terms of your ability to support yourself and support your family.
0: Man, powerful words, man. Powerful words. Where can people connect with you if they want to reach out?
1: So best way is LinkedIn. Uh that's my most active channel. Um you can find me there. Um you can certainly follow me on the cascading leadership handle on LinkedIn or all over the place. So we're on LinkedIn, YouTube, uh TikTok and uh marginally on Facebook. Um building out my TikTok following and YouTube following, so those are two good ways, but you know, connect with me on LinkedIn. Happy to uh, connect with people. You uh you connect with me and throw me a pitch. You're going to be disconnected and blocked. So you you don't, don't take that.
0: that Thor hammer. You're going to hammer ban someone.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: You're going to block them into oblivion. And <laughs> honestly getting blocked on LinkedIn. People don't, not to keep something going, but like people don't realize if you get blocked on LinkedIn, that is like death. You have been you, you don't exist to me anymore. I'll never find you in
1: search. I'll. Yeah. It, and so, yeah, don't, it's uh don't, don't do. It. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I don't use the block hammer often, but if, if I say, Hey, whatever your pitch is, is not relevant. And then you keep trying to get a meeting with me. I'm like, dude, that's just de that's gender neutral, dude. Yeah. <laughs> so like dude, colloquial. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So don't do that.
0: Don't do it. Don't do it. Well, man, thank you so much for coming on here. I feel like we've had two podcasts. I'm ready to go out for beers. Let's do this. Um thank you so much for being on here and and sharing and helping explore some of these topics that you're super familiar with and even some of the ones that are just on the cutting edge like ChatGPT. I really appreciate it, man.
1: No, it was a uh, uh, it was a lot of fun being on and I uh, appreciate you having me on. Hopefully your listeners will find value in it. Um always happy to chat and uh, and help you kind of advance the things that you need to advance. I appreciate it. And, and I know
0: they learned something. And if you're listening to this and you did learn something, and I know you did because I literally have two pages of notes over here front and back, then share this with someone else. Be a thought leader. One person, nine people, 3,000 people, whatever the number, just getting good information into other people's hands. That is how we make this world go around. So with that, Jim, thanks again, man. I appreciate it. No problem. All right, thanks everyone. You bet. This has been another crazy cool episode of the Hardcore Marketing Show. We'll see you all next time.